Oh, Sunday again. How are you this morning, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. No yeah. complaints. I'm, I'm all right. Yep. Quiet weekend. I enjoyed, you know, time with the fam. My my man is not home, so it was just me and my daughter kind of hanging out. You know what I mean? But um, overall, I like the weekend because it is the downtime for us because... Yeah, it's we been work a, hard. It's been a busy start <laughs> to uh, 2024, so I uh, was definitely happy to have a very quiet weekend yep. at home. No yep. complaints. But, you know, it was busy during the week, as always. But this past week, particularly, there was a lot of different news topics coming forward. You uh, you broke a little bit of news about Fogo Island and yeah. Bethany Downer. You spoke with her. I, I found that so interesting, talking about the coming total solar eclipse. That's I love that topic. April 8th. And, uh, yeah. yeah, NASA... Space enthusiasts from all over the world coming to Fogo Island for the total solar eclipse April 8th. So we, uh, yeah, we'll hear from Bethany Downer on that. Uh, we're definitely going to be talking some hockey. There was a hockey story, a local hockey story that really took the whole hockey world, both provincially, nationally, internationally yeah. by storm really all week. Uh, we're going to hear from 47-year-old Terry Ryan, who played his first pro game in some 20 years. That was just unbelievable. Um, but then, you know, of course, our tech talk. Tuesday, yep. City of St. John's building safer communities. It was a, uh, a busy week covering a lot of topics. Gemma Hickey went back yes. to Rome. We're not giving it all away here <laughs> in our little preamble, but we've got lots to bring you. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Well, I've got it right here, but if you're a tea drinker, you're more than welcome to join us. Toast? Biscuits? <laughs> join us right <laughs> here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Good Sunday morning and welcome to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy. The City of St. John's introduced the Building Safer Communities Grant Program to bolster initiatives for preventing crime and violence. Mayor Danny Breen says they're committed to building a safer, more vibrant city for everyone. Mayor Danny Breen joined us on Monday morning. How will the Building Safer Communities grant program target and, I guess, assist community groups in their efforts to prevent crime and violence? Yeah, so this is a national program through Public Safety Canada and the uh, City of St. John's was awarded uh, $1.8 million over, over three years, so about $600,000 a year. Uh, in that $600,000 is uh, approximately 450000 for um, for grants to community organizations, with the balance being for the uh, the, the management and the, the providing direction of the funds. So we've put together a steering committee from the uh, from the community, and we're now accepting applications for the first uh, year of grants, and um, and those applications are now open until uh, mid February, and, uh, and groups can check our website for uh, more details on how to apply. Mayor Breen, $1.83 million in funding for Public Safety Canada or from Public Safety Canada. Exactly how will the funds be used or is it too early to really say because the applications are coming in? Well, it's really too early. So we, what, we, uh, what we're looking for is, uh, is programs from the, uh, from the community groups who, um, who may have ideas or work that they, uh, that they want to complete. Um, addressing the underlying risks of crime and uh, and violence within the city, so it could be related to uh, uh, gender-based violence. Uh, it could be related to youth. Um, certainly, uh, big big topic around addictions and uh, and just uh, anything that has to do with safety with uh, within our community. So there's many community groups out there who are doing fantastic work and have other initiatives that they want to undertake and. Uh, and so they're certainly encouraged to uh, to apply and uh, and um, and look for funding under this program. How long is the application process opened? It's open till around mid February. I think it's February 11th. Uh, this is the first round. This is this year's, and then there'll be another round next year. So the projects. Uh, I believe have to have to be completed. Uh, we'll have them awarded, I believe, by March 31st, and they have to be completed by March 31st of next year. I'm speaking with St. John's Mayor Danny Breen about the Safer Building Safer Communities Grant Program. Mayor Breen, is crime and violence is that increasing in the city? 
Well, you know, we've been uh, we've been concerned about safety within the city. It's not only the actual safety and the statistics; it's people's perception of of being safe. That's in that's important. So we work very closely with the uh, uh, with the RNC and the provincial government. And uh, uh, some would remember some of the work that we did. We uh, had headed up by the George Street Association last year. So. Yes, it's it's a concern. It's uh, you know we uh, one of our goals and strategic goals is to build a health and safety a health and safe community, and uh, we are continuing to uh, to work towards that. Uh, this project uh, put forward by the federal government is uh, is a great opportunity for engaging further community groups and allowing some funding uh, to to work towards that goal. Are there plans in place to keep the initiatives going beyond the initial three-year funding period? Well, we're not sure about that. These programs tend to be renewed or they tend to uh, move in a different direction uh, over over time. So uh, right now we're focused on the, on the three years and uh, depending, of course, on the success of the program and um, and the uh, the outcomes. I'm sure that the federal government will uh, will consider where we need to go next on these uh, on these different uh, initiatives. And in conclusion, what should people know about the application process? Well, the application process. There's a screening process in place. We have a steering committee put together that's uh, representatives from uh, the community and. Uh, Staffing is provided by the by the city through funding under the under the program. So those uh, applications will be evaluated, and uh, and then the money will be announced uh, somewhere towards the end of March, early in April. So uh, we encourage groups uh, in the community that uh, that have a role to play in this to to consider uh, their options under this program. And that is Mayor Danny Breen joining us on Monday morning. Jerry Lynn. Well, last September, advocate for victims of clergy abuse, Gemma Hickey, made international news when they led a pilgrimage to the doors of the Vatican to demand that Pope Francis sign a proposed zero-tolerance law for clergy abuse. Just this past week, Hickey made the return to Rome to present a lecture on zero-tolerance, safeguarding children and vulnerable adults at the Pontifical Gregorian University, and that was scheduled for the 18th of January. Well, before Gemma left for Rome... They stopped by our studios at your VOCM. Tell us how this opportunity came to be. Well, uh, a few of my colleagues and I had a chance to meet with one of the leading theologians in the world on this issue while uh, we were in Rome after the pilgrimage, Hans Zollner. And uh, he invited me back to present a lecture at the Pontifical Gregorian University, which is a huge honor. Um, and, uh, you know, I really feel that it's so important, particularly because Newfoundland and Labrador is ground zero when it comes to clergy sexual abuse. I've said this repeatedly. You know, it wasn't survivors in, in Boston, brave as they were, who broke this out into the mainstream. It was survivors from Newfoundland and Labrador in particular Mount Cashel. So uh, it's, uh, it's a huge step forward, and getting scholarship behind a proposed zero-tolerance law is, uh, is a step closer to our goal. So I'm really excited about this opportunity, and uh, you know, I'm hoping that it will set the tone for, uh, for more conversations to come. So the lecture happens on the 18th. I mean, it's going to be a whirlwind trip. Tell me your main messages while you're in Rome. Well, basically, you know, it's still the case that a priest can rape a child or a vulnerable adult and remain in his position. A bishop can cover up the crimes of his clerics and employees and remain in his position or even get promoted. There's no mandatory requirement for church personnel to report abuse to civil authorities, and survivors don't have access to church files with information pertaining to their abuse. So this, these are some of the key aspects of the zero-tolerance policy, and the Pope has the ultimate authority over canon law. And so uh, now once we, have, uh, we get together and talk and meet with these theologians and bring in our canon law experts, I'm hoping that we have a conference as early as June that's my goal, um, so that we can revise this policy and deliver it to Pope Francis so that he can make it a universal law of the church. And help protect people moving forward. 
Absolutely. Gemma, you've also written a letter to the archbishops of this province. What do you want them to know? Well, you know, I, I wrote uh, three of them. Um, the, the Archbishop of Grand Falls, I, I wrote early in December after there was a, um, a case or a, an, another allegation against a, a priest from Avondale. I can't comment on the innocence or guilt of this man, but I did want to reach out to the bishop and ask him, you know, what safety measures are in place? Because he referenced, you know, providing safe environments to people um, in his diocese. And so I wanted him to further, um, you know, explain what safe environments meant and whether or not uh, survivors were involved in the process in developing safety protocols. I also reached out to um, the Archbishop of Cornerbrook um, recently, and he responded to me actually a very, very uh, positive response. And I'm going to meet with him in person when I return from Rome. Uh, I reached out to Archbishop Hunt. And uh, in particular in St. John's, where the diocese is um, incorporating now into a new entity, I wanted to ensure that the, the, the mistakes of, of before are not repeated. So I had some questions on what the preventative measures are in place. We're at, we're, you know, the majority of priests here are either nearing retire, retirement age or, or have exceeded retirement age. And so um, if they're bringing priests in from away, what are the screening processes that are in place to, to ensure that the public are safe? Gemma, you know, being invited to Rome to speak on this topic by one of the world's leading scholars, how, how does that make you feel as, as an advocate, as a Newfoundlander and Labradorian, and how confident are you that you have the Pope's ear and he's listening? You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm honored and hum humbled. And, uh, you know, even as a, a girl, I knew that uh, before I even understood the, the words clericalism, heteropatriarchy, coloniality, which I'll be examining in my lecture, um, I knew that it was wrong for a priest to abuse a child or a vulnerable adult and still remain on that altar. And, uh, I'm, you know, after millions of steps, literal steps, I'm one step closer to that goal. And uh, I'm really, really excited about the possibilities to come. And, uh, you know, there's a lot riding on this lecture, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to give it my all and um, hope to return to Rome in June for, for meetings to, to get this zero tolerance policy refined and move forward. Where does your resolve come from? Well, I'm a Newfoundlander and Labradorian. You know that. Uh, we're tough. And, uh, and so I always take that with me. And, and I'm really proud to represent this province and country and uh, holding everyone here at home, both parishioners and survivors, always in my heart. And that is my conversation with advocate for victims of clergy abuse and author Gemma Hickey just before they headed to the airport to go to Rome. Ben. Now we're going to head to Memorial University. Progress continues in the hunt for Munn's new president. Last month, the Board of Regents greenlit the framework and composition of the Presidential Search Committee. The committee will be headed up by current board chair Glenn Barnes, four other board members, four faculty, four students to be chosen from the various student unions, an academic administrator, a non-academic administrator, and a member from the public. Munn Students Union Director of External Affairs John Harris joined us on Friday morning. Your thoughts on the composition of the Presidential Search Committee? I think the the composition is uh, you know is fairer than it was going to be. I, I'm I'm glad that the the uh, board decided to uh, take on an extra two student unions. We have four student unions in uh, the. The province and memorial uh and we you know need to have each student from each student union represented because there's a wide variety of uh students that go to the university so i'm uh, glad to have uh, initially there's only supposed to be two student representatives so we've been able to push that up to four uh so we have a uh you know a good balance balance here of, of the students faculty and uh, uh other members what do you know about how those four students will be selected? Uh, so we get to choose the, the, the students uh, for from each union gets to, to choose the students. I think the one issue that, that is really popping out to me about this committee is uh, there is a confidentiality agreement and it is a secret search. Uh, I think that you know, this has been an issue for a long time with these types of committees is that they're done in secrecy. Uh, so when we're trying to choose a new you know, steward of this university, uh, the process is not really open to the public. You know, I think that uh, another issue that, that we've been taking is that there is 
no uh, commitment by the university not to use a, a headhunting firm uh, like was done in the past for uh, President Timmons. So I, I think that there's still we're trying to re- right the wrongs of, of how these committees were done before. And I don't think we're really going all the way. I think we need to be looking at why, why will we have a secret search when, you know, this is the idea of finding a president is finding a leader uh, for the community. And how is the community supposed to have input if uh, what goes on in this committee is completely secret. Uh, so I, I think that in order to be more uh, democratic and to find the best steward for this university, we need to have an open and transparent process. Yeah, so what would be the point of the presidential search committee if the university is not making any guarantees that they won't just use a headhunter and find one themselves? I mean, I think that they may, you know, the, the presidential search committee may uh, have some uh, say on whether or not uh, they will be uh, using a, a corporate headhunter. I think that a lot of times, uh, you know, with the, with the last uh, with the last search, I mean, that's the problem with these confidentiality agreements that you have to sign to be part of these committees. Is that we there? There is not enough transparency in how these decisions are being made. Who is overseeing? Who is vetting these candidates? I think if you know we're relying and putting a lot of uh, the that that hard work onto a uh, corporate a corporation that is designed to find uh, you know corporate candidates i don't think that we will be able to have the the, the say that we need to make as a community so that, that's a, that's a that's a big concern when it comes to to this committee i think when we're looking for a president you know what we what we in the student union look for a president is uh, wh- who is going to uh, stick up for students uh, you know, this university is about the students and the, is about, you know, teaching the future uh, of our province. And I think that if we have a, a president that is, is looking out for uh, other things like we have seen in the past where we have had President Timmons, uh, according to Minister Osborne, approach the government to uh, increase tuition, I think that we, you know, students should be uh, considered and tuition should be considered in this new president. I think I think everybody should be able to have a, a, a say on what kind of president we need. And, and to have a closed committee, I think, is, is not uh, a good step forward. We're speaking with Munsu, Director of External Affairs, John Harris, on your VOCM Mornings. And John, is this the first time students have had any kind of involvement in this process? I think students have have had uh, representation on on these committees in the past. Um, I, I, this may this may they may not have had this much representation. Uh, I'm glad to. I think that is a win to have four student union represent, uh, representatives on this committee. Um, but I mean, how do we engage the student body in a conversation about the president, uh, the new president, if there is, uh, you know, confidentiality when it comes to picking these candidates? And, you know, I think that there's you know, the argument that comes from the other side is that, you know, we don't want to, uh, we had to worry about the candidate's privacy in, 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 in uh, applying. But there, there really doesn't seem to be major evidence that, uh, that, that this kind of, uh, that an open search affects the, the crop of candidates. Uh, I think that there's a, a lot to be said for having an open search. I think that they'd have a lot more in, input from the community and have a, uh, we should be looking at what their president's values are. What are their, you know, what is their obligation to the people of the province? Do they, how much do they uh, care and, and, and know the, this province? You know, I think that that is a really a, a huge thing when it is a public university that we are able to have a public process. John, it's been a relatively tumultuous last couple of years at Memorial University. Is this a chance to really hit the reset button and get it right? I, I think I think that they're they're always uh, you know it's a work in progress. I think that I, I would love to see a, a better process that would lead us to a uh, a president that shares our, our values and is looking to uh, improve the, the the university by making it more accessible and open for students and to complete its core mission, which is to the people of this province and to uh, giving education for. Uh, for young people and you know anybody who wants to return to education, I think that 
in order to do that, we also can't just, you know, luck into a a star candidate. We also have to change the process and make it a more open and more transparent process, along with all the, you know, other recommendations from uh, the Auditor General's report uh, to to be to be more open and transparent doesn't just mean uh, in the day-to-day operations. It means in these kind of governance issues, like the, uh, the this uh, presidential search committee. John, just finally, what are you hearing from students around all this? I I mean I think that the you know the the, the search for a president is often uh, a source of of, of light. Uh, mockery <laughs> when it comes to uh, students. I, I think that students are a little bit uh, burnt out from all this presidential discussion. I think we just want some a, a, a president that's going to look out for our interests. That is not going to uh, put us on a plate to the to the premier's office and and uh, sell us out uh, like we have had seen in the past when it comes to the the massive increase in tuition. Uh, I think that. Uh, it was it, we need a a president that's going to stick up for us and to be uh, care about our concerns and not want to uh, uh, make it unaffordable to go to uh, school here in the province. And that is the director of external affairs with Monsu, John Harris, joining us on Friday morning. We still have lots more to bring you on the best of your VOCM mornings. Stay with us. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy. And now we're going to talk tech. We're diving deep into the complexities of data security and user privacy, exploring Meta's ongoing class action lawsuit and the proposed $51 million settlement. From their sponsored stories program to its legal nuances and the potential ramifications for the wider tech landscape, we had our resident technologist, Kevin Andrews, join us on Tuesday morning to Break down all the news. What is this class action lawsuit against Meta all about, and why are they proposing a $51 million settlement? Well, Ben, this lawsuit against Meta concerning their sponsored stories ads uh, from, I believe, from 2011 to 2014 reveals users' claims that, that Meta used their names and photos without permission. And so uh, if you like the product on Facebook during this program, it, it automatically generated a post with your name and your photo, uh, all without informing so in response, Meta is suggesting a $51 million settlement to sort of tackle this issue. Now, you know, this isn't the first time Meta faced criticism for, for their questionable practices. And, and I can cite many examples, but, you know, specifically back in 2012, they conducted what they're calling a secret mood manipulation experiment as well. That really came to light. And, and this experiment involving altering the content of users' news feeds uh, to really observe emotional impact uh, on their posting behavior. And, and so once again, you know, it brings attention to Meta's history of controversial actions and the ongoing need for, for scrutiny over their ethical practices. So what were the cons- privacy concerns raised by the plaintiffs? So um, uh, the, the sponsored stories program, I mean, worked automatically. It, it created posts in, in users' feeds, uh, and when they interacted with the product on Facebook by by liking it. And, and so, you know, the issue is that the platform used the usernames and photos really without telling them beforehand. And and so the plaintiffs now are sort of worried about uh, the lack of transparency, saying their privacy rights were violated because you know they weren't asked for permission uh, before their names and pictures were even used. So so really, you know, it underscores the ongoing need for clear rules, uh, user agreements, uh, and when it comes to using personal information on social media. What's the significance of the settlement amount, and what message does it send about protecting Canadians' rights? Well, I mean, the $51 million settlement is significant, uh, as it indicates that Meta recognizes the privacy concerns of Canadian users uh, uh, in this sponsored stories program. And, and while Meta doesn't admit full fault, uh, they substantially, I, I guess they're, they're giving substantial compensation. And really, that sends a strong message about the importance of safeguarding Canadian rights, uh, particularly in the online space. And, and it 
really highlights uh, the large companies like Meta really need to adhere to and respect the privacy laws of the countries that they operate in. And also, too, you know, it serves as sort of a spotlight on, on critical aspects of user privacy and the responsibility that major tech companies bear in this digital age. Uh, I think, you know, this lack of openness not only worries people about their personal privacy, but also shows a bigger problem <clears throat> with how, you know, big tech companies manage user information. We're speaking with Kevin Andrews on Tech Talk Tuesday on your VOCM mornings. And Kevin, how will the settlement process work? What steps do class members need to take to make sure they receive that compensation? Well, for the settlement to happen, a judge in B.C. Supreme Court has to sort of give it a green light first. And after that, a company named, I think, MNP Limited will, will be in charge then of distributing that $51 million fairly. Now, people affected don't need to take action. Uh, once the settlement is approved, uh, a well-designed plan will likely be announced, and, and I think uh, to simplify the process, um, there's a suggestion at the moment to set up some type of online form that people can fill out. Users can uh, can fill this form out, confirm their residency in specific provinces, and and, and their Facebook activity during the, the relevant time. Now, it's estimated that around 4.3 million users will receive information on claiming their share of, of the settlement, and so, you know, doing the math, uh, it roughly amounts to about $12 per person. Now, you know, one it might not be a significant amount of money, uh, I think it really underscores a shift in expectations regarding, you know, data and, and user privacy. Yeah, and Kevin, what's the bottom line here? Well, you know, this lawsuit serves as sort of a wake-up call for all tech companies, signaling a shift in expectations uh, regarding, you know, users' data and, and privacy. I mean, it's crystal clear that, that people are becoming increasingly mindful of their digital footprint and in this sort of evolving landscape. And, and with the legal action, and, and this such lawsuit, you know, it plays a crucial role in, in setting sort of the ground rules for safeguarding data in, in the tech industry. You know, maybe next time Facebook might think twice before using users' information without our consent. And that is our local technologist, Kevin Andrews, joining us on Tech Talk Tuesday. Jerry Lynn. Well, every week an estimated 500,000 Canadians miss work due to a psychological health issue. Workplace NL is hosting a number of online webinars that are focused on mental well-being and its effect on the workplace. Telling us more about it, Workplace NL's Senior Health and Safety Advisor, Kathy Barrett-Brinson, joined us earlier this week. How alarming is it for you to hear that 500,000 Canadians are missing work each week due to their mental health? Absolutely. I mean, that stat is absolutely staggering, and we know that, you know, that stat uh, means personal and workplace impacts that can be absolutely devastating. Kathy, what impact does mental health have on employees and the workplace as a whole? Oh, it, it has a huge impact. In fact, um, you know, I think what's affecting workplaces the most in in this time right now, this economic time and this, uh, you know, period in, in the workplaces is the concern around mental health. And, you know, that's part of why uh, Workplace NL has taken on this virtual lear- learning series. This will be our fourth annual one. And it is to talk about those impacts um, that mental health does have on the workplace. And it's also to make sure that we're equipping employers and workers to make sure that they're able to work in a safe and supportive workplace. Yeah. What are some of the topics being discussed during the upcoming webinars that you're hosting? So next week, we are going to be hosting uh, five webinars each day, and we'll be releasing three podcasts that week. So some of the topics we're going to be talking about is some of the small steps that we can uh, take to reduce burnout in our workplace. So we know that that's something that a lot of people are experiencing. And, uh, you know, that obviously increases people's stress and, uh, you know, has negative impacts, again, on the employer and the employee. We're also going to talk about the power of reaching out. So that's one of my favorite sessions, and it really is helping to equip workers uh, to talk to, you know, some of their coworkers or maybe even take it into their life outside of the workplace that may seem to be struggling with a challenge in, you know, with their mental health or something happening significant in their life. So it can be daunting to reach out to someone and, uh, you know, that you may think is struggling, you would want to only help them. So that conversation, I think that one might be happening on Wednesday, will be helping to equip people to have those conversations. Uh, we're also going to be talking about, uh, you know, stigma and how stigma impacts the workplace. And we're going to end the week with a session on um, 
how employers and employees can make sure that they're assessing the workplace to make sure that you've identified in your own workplace what potentially could harm workers' uh, mental health and psychological well-being, and then the steps that they can take once they have recognized those hazards. And as I said, we'll also have three podcasts that really focus on the pillars of health. So we're going to be talking about sleep. Um, with our very own Deanne Vincent, Health and Safety Advisor. We're going to be talking about the importance of movement with Ryan Osborne from Coach Oz, Coach Oz Coaching, sorry. And we're going to be talking about nutrition with Amanda James from Concept Nutrition. That sounds like you're covering a lot of the hot topics that might, you know, lead to, uh, I guess, not a crisis, but definitely a moment where you're thinking you need to take a little time. The sleep one sounds like uh, a lot of people could benefit from that. Workplace NL's Senior Health and Safety Advisor, Kathy Barrett-Brinston, thank you again for joining us. How important is it to host these sessions? It's very important. Um, We find that actually this week is probably one of the weeks throughout the year where we get the highest attendance. So it shows us that it is really a concern and and an important topic in our province. And we're excited to have people next week uh, where we can, you know, take that time to educate them, to equip them, and hopefully they'll, you know, walk away with some tools and, uh, you know, tools and education that can certainly help them in their own uh, experience and in their own workplace. And Kathy, before we let you go, give us the details now on when they're taking place and how people can get involved. Absolutely. So our virtual learning series is uh, happening starting January 22nd next week. So it's going to run from Monday to Friday. We're hosting one webinar that begins 10 o'clock each morning. Um, for the five days, you can visit our website and, uh, you know, just look to see the psychological health and safety learning series. And right there, you can just register. It's pretty easy. It'll just take you through the process. And I just would like to mention that these sessions are for absolutely anyone in the workplace. There's going to be takeaways for uh, employers, going to be takeaways for, for employees, supervisors. So it's really for everyone. And the sessions, of course, are free. So, you know, we just encourage everyone to sign up if you can attend all five great if you can just make one or two that would be great too and that is my conversation with workplace nl's senior health and safety advisor kathy barrett brinson over to you ben the association of allied health professionals that represents some 800 allied health professionals in the province says it's walking away from conciliation talks with the provincial government after walking away from the bargaining table in 2023 ahp entered into the conciliation process this past december in the hopes of reaching a contract agreement for its membership. Now, after what they call weeks of frustration, the AAHP decided it was time to focus its energy on mobilizing the membership and determining next steps. AAHP President Gord Piercy joined us on Thursday morning. Why did you decide to walk away from conciliation talks now with the government? Well, basically, uh, just to give a little bit of history of where we're to, I mean, we, we represent 800 vital health professionals. And the history behind that is we, um, job evaluation system, and there was a bit of talk about that in Minister Cody's news conference yesterday. About 10 years ago, so it's a little while back, we had some pay disparities, uh, significant actually pay disparities that got created in, um, with our pay grids, with our membership how they're paid basically and as we you know as we know a lot has happened in 10 years and um, we feel that we need to address this pay disparity at this moment for a lot of reasons you know there's national global health professional shortages Uh, the pay disparities have actually widened because of general pay increases that government has provided but also that there are considerable considerable recruitment and retention pressures on the system So we feel it is timely, appropriate, and necessary to review this at this time. So Minister Siobhan Cody says she's reached out to the Labour Minister and asked him to consider appointing a mediator to help. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's that was that we actually that was news for us yesterday in the news conference. Of course, we didn't we weren't aware of that. But you know what we have said to this government from day one is that we are willing to talk whenever but we need to see talks that are uh, productive uh, fruitful moving forward and addresses some of the concerns the biggest the biggest challenge i have and, and even have spent many hours thinking about this and you know as the union president but i i, I don't I, we need government's words and their actions to match and that is my biggest frustration in this process we hear 
constantly from this government about the value of all healthcare workers and particularly our membership and you know how vital what we did during the pandemic all those things we're not seeing those words turn into action so i'm all about talking with them anytime that we can move something substantive and productive forward so gord what does newfoundland and labrador health services look like without allied health professionals well you know, we know there's a lot of wait lists in healthcare, and the services that allied health professionals provide are a humongous part of that. It's just huge. So we also, I mean, I think about psychology where we're only working about 50% capacity anyways because of mass resignations we've sustained over the past couple of years. So already what I would say to you is that massive uh, wait list inside of rehab services, pediatrics, mental health will probably only widen as time goes on, and the strike will widen that those wait lists and wait times times more. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about how acute care and long-term care facilities are going to run. And we are in the midst of negotiating the central services agreement. So the basics will be done. We'll, you know, our members are committed to doing what they need to do there. But um, ultimately, this is a disruption that none of us needs. If we can just get government to meet with us and, and actually produce something productive that we can actually you know, do something productive and create a solution for. We want to solve this. Our members do not want to be on strike. They don't want to subject the province to this. But when something drags on as long as this particular issue has, on nearly 10 years, uh, we're at a point where we just, you know, we have to stay, say stop, we have to just reset, and we have to, uh, you know, look at our priorities right now. And during that news conference with Minister Cody yesterday, she was asked about the impact a strike could have on the public health care system. And her response was, and I'm paraphrasing here, along the lines that there are these professions in other unions. What do you make of that response? What are you hearing from your members? Because I did hear from some allied health professionals yesterday who were pretty upset by those comments. We all, we all were. I shared that upset. And, and, you know, as you know, I've been involved in union leadership for, my gosh, over two decades. And we've prepared for strikes for other bargaining units in the past, you know. And, and you know, what's always what other unions will say when another union is on strike, particularly in healthcare, is, you know, basically, stay in your own lane, do your own job. You don't do the work of another bargaining unit, especially when there's a labor dispute. So I, I'm really not sure what Minister Cody was, I don't know why, where she was going with that, but I'm, I'm fairly confident, and I will say this quite you know, directly to you, that if we end up in a strike situation, I really feel that we will have solidarity and respect and support from other unions in the province, other healthcare unions, and I don't foresee, I don't foresee that being a problem where we would have other people in doing our bargaining unit work. Um, and even if that did happen, there's protocols and um, procedures to address that if that were to happen. So I'm, I'm not overly uh, worried that the other unions will do something with that. Uh, I, I don't think they will. You know, most of us, you know, all these, we've all had our labor disputes and, and conflicts with government. And uh, we try to have each other's back when that happens. We're speaking with Association of Allied Health Professionals President Gord Piercy on your VOCM mornings. And Gord, are you losing allied health professionals due to current working conditions? Well, this is a group that, you know, there's so many challenges with this group. I mean, we know there's private sector opportunities out there. So, you know, our pharmacists, our rehab professionals, our mental health clinicians, there's always that uh, opportunity for them uh, to do private, you know, to work at private agencies or retail pharmacies or what have you. That's always there. I do know that members are looking at other jurisdictions. We know our health minister gets quite upset when other provinces show up and they start talking to our health professionals, whether there are new graduates in some of our programs or whether they're seasoned people already working in the system. We know that that makes them cranky and, and I, I, it upsets me too. But my response to that is that we need to be competitive. A strong competitive collective agreement is the very best recruitment and retention tool that we can ever hope to have if we want you know, qualified health professionals in the in our hospitals and in our healthcare settings, and uh, again, a place where we need to see the words and the actions match up. You know, even our current staffing. The other challenge I see, you know, I, I, I actually spent some time last evening looking at the health accord. I actually participated in some of the work around the health accord. Our premier touts that as our blueprint forward for Newfoundland and Labrador for our comprehensive health services. 
allied health professionals are woven through that entire document. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, there's so many things that they want us to do inside of that. So things like, you know, team-based care, expanded scope of practice for some professions, which some of ours, uh, strengthening the presence in rural Newfoundland, and wellness and prevention initiatives. Like, we're, we're all through the entire document. Again, we can't fill the positions we have vacant today. How are we going to bring more people or get more talent into these community centers, into these health centers, into these health facilities, if we can't fill what we have? We have unique challenges in allied health. We have to get, you know, a lot of our people are out of province trained. So that's that's a competitor right there that we have to try. So physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech pathology, we have to get those people back you know, back to the province because they train other places. So I think there's a lot of nuances there, especially, you know, pertaining to our group. You know, there are, there are you know, there's some places that we don't have a lot of these schools. I didn't even realize, you know, there's only 10 schools of pharmacy in this whole country. So, um, you know, there's a lot of little unique pieces here, and, and we, we need government to pay attention to that as well. If they're really committed to, you know, uh, transformation of the healthcare system. So, Gord, what are the next steps now for AAHP? You mentioned how how allied health professionals don't want to strike, but can people expect it? Should people prepare for potential job action? Well, we our members are certainly preparing for job action. And again, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable conversations, but it's a conversation they're willing to have and they're, they're wanting they're, they're wanting change. And as much as this is upsetting for them, um, they will do what they need to do to bring the right to change. We are so fearful about the future of healthcare that we feel if we don't do something now, there may not be nothing left in a few years. The one thing when you're negotiating a collective agreement is you also got to factor in, you know, what's the world going to look like at the end of your contract? And one of the conversations that we have had with our membership is we're not sure if there's even going to be a lot of us left. We know we got retirements approaching, uh, you know, and, and succession planning is not often well done by the, by the employer. And, we feel like, you know, we, we need to make a stand on this now. We need to be taken seriously. And again, if government's words and actions do not match, we need to help them get to that point. And that is Association of Allied Health Professionals President Gord Piercy. Stay with us. Still more to come on the best of your VOCM mornings. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Good Sunday morning and welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy, and it was a birthday Terry Ryan will <laughs> never forget. Really, this story just took the hockey the hockey world by storm all week. I was really into this story, so that'll tell you it had a yeah, wide audience. It had a wide audience, absolutely. Yeah, it really just captured the attention of so many right across the country and even beyond. The Mount Pearl native celebrated his 47th birthday by lacing up his skates for the Newfoundland Growlers Sunday afternoon at Mary Brown Center. A flu spreading all throughout the Growlers dressing room. Uh, rules from Hockey Canada that say if you pick up senior or junior players after January, January 10th. They are no longer permitted to play with their senior or junior teams for the rest of the season. So really a, a perfect storm of factors coming together all at once. And well, the team called on the former first round NHL draft pick to step in. Growlers broadcaster Chris Ballard and I spoke with Terry Ryan after Sunday's game. I was celebrating my birthday, which is today, but um, I figured Saturday night was better than Sunday. I came to watch this game yesterday because well, I watch a lot of Growlers games, but some of the guys on that team are my best buddies, right? They, we go back a long time. Zach, Jordy, Marcus, you know, jeez, uh, Adam Daw, uh, Meller. So, now again, I still didn't see this coming. I was out. I was literally sitting at Blue on Water. My buddy Jason Brake's place went down. And to be quite honest with you, I never said it before, but I was probably five or six pints in, and Zach calls me. And I said, well, come on, yeah, my birthday, whatever, April Fool's, click. And then Pirates phoned. And I knew when Pirates phoned, it's serious. I said, you tell me right now, because I'll go home. And I did. Pirates said, I'm serious. I hailed a cab, went home. I, I'd say I drank four liters of water, had a bite to eat, and just, I, I went to sleep. Tried to, it was broken sleep, very excited. And um, woke up, and it was a reality. 
I, I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't a little bit more nervous than I let on. Um, yeah, I've played before, but we're talking, I was joking with the guys, you know, you get sent down for two weeks, but two decades is a little much. <laughs> uh, but to be quite honest, I'm glad that I skate with the guys. So I skate four or five times a week. I play a lot of ball hockey now. Some people will laugh, but I, I just figure if I had the cardio, at least a fraction of it that I could go out and not embarrass and, and try to be a sufficient player out there for my hometown team. And to be honest, I didn't know what would happen. And after that first shift, I, you know, I didn't get out there for a while. And I, I would have been fine with that. It's a real honor yeah. to, to be my age and get to go out and, you know, just be, be part of it at all. I mean, this is up there with just because of the odds of all this. It's up there with my first NHL game. And by, I don't know, but it's more unexpected and intriguing just the way it went down. And, um, Yeah, it's, sorry, my, uh, my daughter was there. She, she just hadn't seen me ever play pro, and um, she's 13, and you know, I just wanted to go out there, and I knew her and her friends were here, and I didn't want to embarrass, man. And I just kept thinking about it. And she's really, when she was born, my life just got so much better. I just, my pro career was even at that point, almost a decade in the past. And I just didn't see this coming, and you know, just look up and, and see her there, and to hear the ovation. I never thought I'd hear that ovation again in my life, and uh, you just never know. I, I didn't know if people were thinking, this guy's nearly 50 years old, like what are we doing? Is this a publicity stunt? I remember when I played in the American League and Gordy Howe came in, I think it was with Syracuse or Detroit Vipers maybe, and, and you know, he had that one shift. And I think some people thought that it was a publicity stunt, but I wouldn't have done it if it was a publicity stunt. I skate, and I, when I got it here today, I said, Matt, like, if, if you want me to play, I'll, I'll play the way I always did. And that's really all I could do. And I, I wasn't planning on fighting. Obviously, I know that it's not as big a part of the game anymore. I'm fine with that. But still, I don't know. I turn around, and my buddy, my teammate, has got his helmet off. I, did a minor bit of homework on players. I knew that Walker mixes it up a bit. What do I have to lose? I'm supposed to lose that fight, right? It's like when I fought Taidomi when I was 18. Unless he kills me, people are gonna go WTF. And I just figured, again, no plans on that. But I'm gonna play the way I'm gonna play, supposing I'm 60 or 20. Yeah, a little extended conversation between the two of you. You still got the, the, the mouth game, I guess. I think that was a bit much, but that's, I, I, I can't replace that. that. That's my passion for the game coming out. And if I'm out there and I've got my skates on, I'm not 47, I'm on that team. And I'm, I'm there to do something. You asked me to play for a reason, that's the reason. What, 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 what kind of player was I? I was the kind of player that would try to stick up for my teammates. Did I think that was going to happen? Capital N, capital O. But whatever duty calls, you know. Is it a little extra special when it's, you know, you're coming to the defense of someone like James Melindy? Yeah, it really is, because I never... These guys are my friends. Most of my friends in my life growing up, minor hockey, friends I've made um, through playing on the, uh, well, pro wherever. You know, I'd had that chance to be there for them. Now, again, I never thought I'd be Mellor's teammate but he's a good friend, and the guys all vouched for me. There's no way that I just would have come down here playing if they didn't vouch for me, you know, because I'm sure Matt Cook probably thought, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I'm sure he must have. I would think that. I would. Uh, you know, so, yeah. I, I don't know what would have happened, but when I looked down and it was Meller with his helmet off, I felt like, I felt a rage inside that, I, I feel that was one of the reasons I got drafted in the first place, was because I have that, Whatever it is, I react, and sometimes it's too much. It might be a bad temper. I don't know. Loosely based, it's probably passion, if you want to use that word. But, you know, I, I can't really turn that off if you're going to ask me to play a game with hitting and competitive tenacity.
And that is Terry Ryan speaking after he made his professional hockey debut, you could say, for the first time in 20 years. Over to you, Jerry Lynn. Well, turn around, bright eyes. Ben, you brought me my favorite story of the week this time. You're welcome. The total solar eclipse is coming on the 8th of April in Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly the central region, will be right on the path of totality. The province will not be on the path of totality for a solar eclipse again until I'm 100 years old. Old, 2079. Ben Murphy sat down with Bethany Downer, Chief Science Communications Officer with the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes in St. John's to find out more. What's a total solar eclipse? So we will be looking at the moon coming in between us and the sun. So in the late afternoon, it will become completely dark. Um, and when for those that are in the path of totality that are directly in line, so primarily those that are in the central part of the province, um, you'll be able to see a ring of light around the moon. It's a really unique phenomenon that very few get to see. Um, and it'll be taking place starting around 4 p.m. in the afternoon for those here. So the, the area of totality will be around 5 p.m. Um, but it'll start around late afternoon. You'll start to see an eclipse, look like a crescent that's passing over the sun there. And it's quite exciting. I tell everyone that they should try to prioritize, you know, taking time to go see it, you know, weather permitting if there's not too much cloud cover. <laughs> Always a uh, constant battle here. Absolutely. So how is that different from... I, what all I will call a normal or partial solar eclipse. Here, it's orbital mechanics. Things are lining up perfectly for us so that we are perfectly in line to see that the sun will be completely covered by the moon based on where we are here. Um, it's so rare, in fact, that the island will not be in the line of totality for another total solar eclipse until 2079. So why is this so rare? Uh, but because for the alignments to take place in this way, it will not always happen in the same place on the planet. Right. So when there are solar eclipses, it's usually different places around the world that get to see them, and they only happen every now and again. So it's quite exciting that it's taking place through here, and it's going up through North America. So I know many people that are traveling throughout the U.S. and Atlantic Canada just to get ideal viewing really? conditions for it. Absolutely. So where are some of those other good spots? Um, heading up through the central part um, of the U.S. and then up onto the northeast coast through Atlantic Canada as well. So there'll be those that are able to see in the other Atlantic provinces. Um, for here on the island, it's primarily in the central region. Now, that's not to say those of us here on the Avalon, for example, can't see it. It just won't be perfectly total eclipse. They'll be, you know, slightly off in the circle that's <laughs> covering the other circle. Uh, but you'll still be able to see it and enjoy it. Again, weather permitting. <laughs> so how exciting are things like this for people in your industry? Pretty cool. I mean, it's something that all of the public can enjoy for free. They can go out in their backyard and take a look at it. And anything that gets people talking about space for us is an enjoyment. Anything that gets people asking questions, excited about space in some regards, is great for us. Um, anything that leads to questions, interest, is something that we truly try to take advantage of. So things like this are, are great. What's the latest with yourself personally and what you've been up to as of late? Uh, things are pretty busy with regards to um, the Space Telescope that I have a pleasure of working with. Um, over the holidays, we were quite busy. I mean, space doesn't turn off, so we're, <laughs> we're always busy looking for new science. Um, and for the total solar eclipse, I'm excited that I'll be on Fogo Island for it. So it'll be uh, quite a unique, unique experience out there. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so what exactly will be happening there? Uh, I've been uh, fortunate to be invited to the inn uh, to help host an event there with some other NASA colleagues. Um, and we'll be inviting people from uh, around the world that are coming just for the eclipse. Wow, so, so quite excited. NASA event, people all over the world coming to Fogo for this. Absolutely. Can you share any more details, or is it still a bit early? Uh, still a little bit early, yet, but we're still working out our, our programming, and the folks there are great to be able to work with, but we're looking forward to uh, having a full house there, I think, for uh, that week there in April, and we'll be doing uh, some space programming with them, and all fingers crossed, all fingers and toes crossed, that we'll have great viewing conditions uh, across the island that day. And that is VOCM's Ben Murphy speaking with Bethany Downer. She's the Chief Science Communications Officer with the Hubble and the James Webb Space Telescopes. So cool. I'm taking the week off that well, week. I look forward to that for you <laughs> specifically. Because I'll be gone. <laughs> You're gonzo. I hope you enjoy it. But uh, I will uh, make a note of that in the calendar. Our time <laughs> is just about up here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Thanks for tuning into the show. Starting your Sunday with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow morning, 5.30 a.m. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Have a safe and happy Sunday. I'm easy like Sunday morning.